0: As we talked about, one of the most important things that we we do uh, is to share with one another and interact with one another and care for our hearts well. And at Grace Bible Church, um, we really understand that, that what's foundational to your own walk with the Lord as well as your function within the body of Christ is to understand how it is that you came to be in the body of Christ. So our lesson today and our lesson next time is going to be uh, a summary of what we believe at Grace Bible Church that scripture teaches about how it is that a person comes to be in the body of Christ and where it is that they're going because they're in the body of Christ today. Uh, You should have one of these. If you don't have one of these, we'll make sure you get one um, because we're going to refer to this from time to time throughout the year. We're definitely going to use it next week. We put one in all of the new folders. Um, Is there anybody here who doesn't have one of these? Oh, good. Great. So get that ready because we're going to use that um, fairly extensively in our message today. And what we're going to do is we're going to show you that um, there's three sides to three three parts to this, and mine is really old and worn out. But this is God's transformation of man. And you see that it's God's transformation of man. Man doesn't transform himself. So the focus in all of this is what God does to transform man. What God does to save a man, what he does to sanctify the man. And what he does to prepare that man for eternity with him. And so we believe that scripture teaches that there are three kinds of people in this universe. There is the unregenerate man. That's man in his natural born condition. And then we have regenerate man. This is man who has experienced salvation. And he's still in this world. He's still breathing and alive and kicking. and, And he's looking forward to eternity with Christ. And then there's the heavenly man who actually is in eternity with Christ. And what we're going to do is we're going to be looking today at, at the first two of those. We're going to be looking at the unregenerate man and the regenerate man. But what you can see at the top of this, if you look at it, is there are some gray uh, markers. There are some gray dividers that sit between each of those three categories. The unregenerate man is is separated from the regenerate man by the regeneration event. You see the gray at the top. It says regeneration. That's an event. And you see... Um, the event that separates the regenerate man from the heavenly man is death and the rapture and you see uh, the heavenly man over there um, he is in his final unmixed condition and what we're going to see is you see a man there he's a dark colored man and that represents sin what you see at at regeneration is that uh, the man in the middle he begins to take on more of a yellow turn and what that does is that's supposed to represent sanctification that's taking place in a man's life and then what you have here uh, on the right-hand side is a man who is completely sanctified and he is no longer a part of this world and he's been removed from this world where the effects of sin are so manifest. And he has, uh, a glor- he has either no body, but his soul is perfectly free from sin, or he has a glorified body after the rapture. Um, and so that's what's represented. So what we're going to do today is we're going to be talking through the, the left side and the center side of our, of our packet. So that's what we're looking at here in in that. And what we're going to take a look at is, first is the unregenerate man. It's really important that we understand that the unregenerate man is a man who is without Christ. And that's the the most important thing we understand is that he's without Christ and that he is in an unmixed condition, spiritually unmixed. And and that, that unmixed condition is a sinful condition. And that's who he is without Christ. And he's a man who possesses no righteousness whatsoever. So he is an unrighteous man. What I want us to do is turn in our Bibles to Romans 5. and We're going to look at verses, uh, sorry, Romans 8. We're going to look through verses 5 through 8 of Romans 8. And what we're going to see here is the, the kind of man that is the unregenerate man. Scripture is very, very clear about what kind of man an unregenerate man is. So in Romans 8, Paul writes, and uh, he, he writes, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit for the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so what you see in this passage is that there's contrast between two kinds of people, the unregenerate man and the regenerate man. In verse five, you see at the very beginning of that, for those who are according to the flesh. What that means, my formal condition, my natural born condition. And by that, the flesh, Paul doesn't mean um, the, the tissues and the muscles and the skin and all of those things and our bones. But but what Paul means here is that which is sinfully weak and that fails and falters before God. And it loves to be that way. And to live according to that means to live by the standard of my own natural condition, to live by a standard that is spiritually uh, dead, sinfully weak and faltering before God so that's the first thing that scripture tells us about man in his natural born condition um, is that he's, he's dead, but the second thing that we learn in, in verse 5 as we move from left to right is that that person sets his mind on the things of the flesh not only is a person who is in the flesh but he sets his mind on the things of the flesh and, and the mind means who I am inwardly before God, who I am as a thinker and a ponderer and all of those things And what it tells us is that the person who is an unbeliever in his natural born condition is that he takes his thinking self and he sets it according to a standard. And that standard is the standard of what is sinfully weak. So he thinks according to what is sinful and weak and faltering in his own flesh. And there is no conflict with that person between his flesh and his mind. Instead, they're in perfect agreement with one another. That's what scripture teaches about uh, the flesh, the natural born condition of man. It tells us in verse 6 at the beginning that the mind set on the flesh is death. And this is a spiritually dead condition before God. All of that person's thoughts lead them only to a position of spiritual deadness before God. So this is what scripture teaches about the natural born condition of a person. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says, You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Paul is talking to Christians in the church. He uses the past tense because he's writing to the saints in the church in Ephesus. He says, You were dead. So they were spiritually dead. But you look at verses 7, uh, the beginning of the verse, and towards the middle of the verse. The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. So, in a person's spiritually dead condition, the last thing they're going to do is subject themselves to God's law. And the reason why, as you move further through the verse, in verse 7, is because they're not even able to do so. The person does not come with any equipping to do God's will. They come equipped to do their own will. And uh, verse 8 tells us that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so Paul is talking here about the person who's in the flesh. He actually cannot please God. And so putting a change of environment in front of that person um, does not make them able to please God a new set of rules that they live by, a new moral code that they might want to live by, a new job, new friends, new sitting, new circumstances, new house. None of those things change a person's standing before God. All of them are worthless because none of them address the heart condition and they're powerless to change their situation as long as they stay in that condition. I mentioned Ephesians chapter two. I'm going to read a couple of verses uh, from Ephesians chapter two. I'm going to read um Verses one through three. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's verses one through three. Paul is describing the condition of every single person who was born. If you drop down to verse 12, Paul tells us what that purchase is for somebody. He says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. And he goes on to show how they were excluded from the benefits of being in Christ. And one of the things that we see there is towards the end of verse 12 is that that person actually has no hope. They have no hope. What that means is they cannot look to the future with any kind of certainty about being saved and spending eternity with God. So what I want to do here is is take a walk through um, some verses that describe that are summaries for the kind of condition that we have. If you look in your notes, you should have Colossians 1.13, Titus 3.3, Colossians 1.2, 1.21, Romans 6. Do you have all of those in your lesson outline? Okay, good. What I want to do is I want to read through these um, and then just say a word or two about them. These are words that summarize the condition that the person is in. Um, this person is characterized in Colossians 1.13 by being a person who is in the domain of darkness. Colossians 1.13, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So this is what God does. He actually rescues people who are in a domain of darkness. Titus three three says, We also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Notice the, the disposition of that person. That person has no desire whatsoever to please God. He's a foolish person. He's disobedient. He's deceived. You can read the list yourself. This is the condition that a person is in. Colossians one twenty one tells us, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds, Paul goes on to, to finish the sentence, but... We want to notice the description of that person is their position is that they're alienated from God. And the orientation of this person is they're hostile in their mind towards God. And their activity is against God. They're engaged in evil deeds. So everything about that person is in opposition to who God is. Romans 6 verses 17 and following talks about good news, but it puts the good news in front of a person in light of who the person used to be. Paul says in verse 17 of Romans 6. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. If you look at the beginning of the verse, that person is described in their unmixed condition as being a slave to sin. Sin is the master of that person. That person has one master and that that master is sin. We see that. We looked at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. But if you you read the following verses, if you read verses 17 through 19, there is a clear description of, of the unbeliever in their natural born condition. Paul says, I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the hardness of their heart and they having become callous have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness so you can see the things that characterize this person that person has futility of mind in verse 17 in verse 18 they're darkened in their understanding their their understanding has no light in it so they can't see things properly their mind is dark but they also have a hard heart in verse 18 um there's a hardness of their heart that's true about them. Their heart is not soft to the gospel message. It's hard. And in verse 19, their, their, their whole self is given over to sensuality. And again, there's there's 100% agreement here. And there's no friction. There's no conflict. There's no disagreement of what's happening. The person is, is fully engaged in activity that is hostile to God. Philippians 3 tells us things about the person that they're actually an enemy of God. Philippians 3:18 says many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. So the person's position is that they're opposed to God, they're actually an enemy of God. Romans 5 tells us other things about the person that they're helpless and they're ungodly, they're a sinner and they need rescue from God's wrath. I love Romans 5:5 5, 5, or 6. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Helpless. That person is helpless to change their own condition. And they're ungodly. They're helpless to change the fact that they're an ungodly person before God. And they need to be rescued. So all of these passages are really helpful and they're really important to us because they describe the condition of a person. And the reason why we spend the time that we do on this is because it's important to us to understand exactly the kind of person that God saves God saves a person who's not interested in saving themselves God saves a person who can't save themselves and God saves a person who is is running against God's good work in their life and so what we want to do is just take a a summary of the the key descriptions of this person and that this person it's really important we understand is in an unmixed condition and when you're here on Sunday mornings and we're, we're sitting here and there's 400 of us here and we're singing and we're doing communion and we're listening to announcements and listening to teaching. Uh, There's people in this room who are in this condition. We need to be praying for these people because uh, they're in an unmixed condition and they're in an unmixed condition in death. There's no spiritual life in them whatsoever. And they're in hostility towards God. They're in rebellion against God. And there is absolutely no disagreement between their flesh and their mind. Uh, their mind is not counseling themselves with truth when their flesh wants to run after the things of the world. And they're unable to not sin uh, because sin is their master. And there's no fight within them, either a fight against sin or fight to please the Lord. There's none of that. And, and sin rules all the faculties of their life. Uh, they, they view the world from a sinful perspective that person is, is also unable to shepherd their heart away from sin and to God because they're an enemy of God and they're hostile to God. And that person is sitting under God's wrath and judgment. God's wrath is resting upon that person. It's abiding on that person, John three thirty six. And so this is what the New Testament calls the old man. And there's no description of a transition into the unregenerate state because that's the condition that the person was born into. Scripture does not describe how a person becomes unregenerate uh, because a person, upon becoming a person, already is unregenerate. Um, That's the condition into into which we were born. And because of man's disposition towards God, the only way that a man can, can do anything to alter his course is not within himself. The only one who can do anything to alter man's position is God himself. So we'll spend some time walking through the regeneration event and it's really, really helpful for us to get this because when we appreciate the scope of what God did to save us, um, I said that wrong, when we appreciate who we were before God saves us, that helps us appreciate the scope of work that was done to save us. If we walk through this list of characteristics that described us as unbelievers and we look at that and we say, oh... Yeah, that's true. I was that kind of person. Maybe we don't have eyes to see that kind of person perfectly, but we understand in principle that that's who we were. We can appreciate the cross more significantly. We can appreciate God's wrath, and we can have a a more clear understanding of that. And we can love being faithful to God much, much more when we understand the cost that was involved in, in rescuing us out of that situation. Before we go any further, I'm going to take a drink so that you guys can actually understand me the more I talk. Okay, so what we want to do is we want to take two phrases that describe, that summarize the gospel. Um, Two theological summaries of the good news itself. And one of them is this, and it's important we we get that. If it's not in your handout, you write this down. This is really helpful. And that is adoption through propitiation. Uh, The adoption process is the process by which a child is made a part of a family to which they don't naturally belong. We know that propitiation is the satisfaction of wrath. So God can bring the sinner into his family because Jesus satisfied the father's wrath against that person on his behalf. So adoption through propitiation. I love that phrase. Uh, It is really, really helpful because the adoption process is one in which the one being adopted has no work in it. The one being adopted does nothing to make the adoption take place. When you read the first few verses of Ephesians chapter 1, you read that uh, in love God predestined us to adoption as sons. Before the foundations of the world, he predestined believers to be adopted into his family by his doing, by his work, not by our own. So I love that phrase, adoption through propitiation, because it, it puts the focus on what God has done. He is the one who adopts, and it's through propitiation. It doesn't happen apart from Christ's work on the cross in that person's place. That's the first one. The second one it is penal substitutionary atonement. Another three-word phrase that describes the gospel. And penalty. There is a penalty that is due. For offense that is laid up against a holy God. Uh, a holy, just God in his justice must penalize, must apply a penalty to sin. When you look at the second word, you understand who it is that actually does that and pays that penalty. It's a substitute. And that substitute is Christ at the cross. And the last word, atonement, helps us understand what was accomplished by Christ's work at the cross. Atonement means to be brought into oneness, to be brought into unity with God. So there's a substitute who satisfies and pays a a penalty to satisfy God's wrath and brings that person into oneness with God. So whenever you're talking about the gospel, whenever you're thinking about the gospel, you're trying to explain the gospel to an unbeliever, You're trying to explain it to your kids. You're trying to explain it to yourself. Those are two phrases that are very, very helpful in in just summarizing the work. There's much, much more that's involved, and we'll get to that. But these are things that concisely help you explain what is taking place. A person is brought into the family of God uh, through Christ's sacrifice at the cross. And uh, a person is not only that, but they're they're brought into oneness with God uh, by Christ's work at the cross in our place. Both of those are, are good summaries of the gospel. All right, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the components of this event that took place. If, if what God did was really important to save a person, it's important that we know exactly what it was that he did. And so we're going to look at several different things here. And these are at the bottom of your sheet where it says uh, the regeneration event components. And there are a bunch of bulleted items there. And we're going to walk through them. Each one of those has a number of verses. We're just going to look at one verse in each one. These are things that are very helpful to us to understand this. And these first things we understand about these components is that they happen one time and they're accomplished by God at the point of regeneration. These are things that God does at one point in time for a believer on the day that he saves you. So if you think back to your own life, if you were, whenever it was that you were saved, whether it was this century or last century, for me, I came to Christ in 1981. In July of 1981, God did these things in my life on that day that he saved me. And it's really good to know these things because um, this helps you understand your identity in Christ, what was done. And so there's new birth, there's new life, you're a new creation. And there's lots of verses there to explain this, but we read Ephesians 1 through 2, 1 through 3. Uh, the verses that follow are so helpful. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5 say, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive. So the regeneration event consists of God making a dead person alive spiritually. It talks about other things that take place after that. They're raised up with Christ and he seats them in heavenly places. So those are talking about future events, but they're written in a way that, that it helps us understand that there are absolutely certain future events and they're as good as being there yourself right now. The second thing that God does is he sanctifies a person positionally. And a good way to think of the word sanctification is to be set apart by or set apart for. And so a person is sanctified, they're set apart unto God, they're set apart for God. 1 Corinthians 1, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Paul's writing to a group of people here who positionally, they have been set apart for God. They're no longer in this mass of humanity that is opposed to God. And they've been set apart from that into another collection of people. They've been set apart <coughs> So on that day that a person comes to Christ, they are actually set apart. They are extracted from the group of people that they were a part of, and they're put into another group. They're set apart. But they're also justified. And justification is a nice way to say you're declared righteous. God actually declares you righteous. Romans 3, verses 21 through 24. Paul says, Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all those who believe for there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. So when a person is comes to Christ and God declares them righteous, he gives them what they need in order to be viewed rightly by him, to be viewed by, with favor by him. Another thing that takes place is imputation. This is being credited with God's righteousness. Jesus is credited with the believer's sin. And the the way I do this is the way I think of this is a t-shirt exchange. I take my my black t-shirt, which is just representative of all of my sin. And I put that on Christ at the cross so he can be my penal substitutionary atonement. And I get his white t-shirt that represents spotlessness and purity. Uh, so all of my sin gets imputed into Christ, but Christ's righteousness gets imputed into me. Second Corinthians five twenty one, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That's the transfer of sin to Christ, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So there is righteousness that comes back. Those two things happen, um, one in one direction, the other in the other direction. Christ gets the sin of the believer. Um, as, as, of the person who is being saved and that person being saved gets the righteousness of Christ. I mentioned adoption. Don't need to spend too much more time there but the idea there is you're, you're brought into a family in which you don't naturally belong. It's a powerful, powerful truth. That person also has union with Christ. Um, We've Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 through 7. What you see there is you see the word with. We're being made us alive together with Christ. In verse six, raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places. What we have there is um, there's a unity with Christ. There's a togetherness with Christ. Whereas prior to salvation, a person is alienated from God, alienated from Christ. Now they have a unity with Christ. Not only do they have a re- unity with Christ, but their sin is actually removed from them. This is great. The the real blessing of this is is that the person's sin is no longer counted against him. Expiation, John one twenty nine. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This verse is not teaching that a person doesn't sin after salvation. They do. I've done so today already. Um, But what this verse teaches is that Christ is the one who bears their sin. In God's system of accounting, uh, when he looks at a person's sin, he sees a person who has come to Christ. He sees that sin having been born by Christ, not by themselves. Propitiation, we talked about this as well, is the satisfaction of wrath. God's wrath against a person is abiding on that person before salvation. But at the point of salvation, at the point of regeneration, God's wrath against that person is satisfied. It's satisfied in the work of Christ at the cross that was performed. 2,000 years ago. If we have trouble with the timing of that, how does that work? How does God's wrath abide on a person after Christ already satisfied the Father's wrath for that? Think about this. God exists outside of time and space. That's why he can write the full Bible for us. That's why we know how it exists and how it ends. We're going through Revelation right now in Smed's teaching on Sunday morning, and he's explaining to us all of the things that are going to take place when? at the end of this age. And the reason why God can tell us what is going to take place at the end of this age, at the end of this time, is because God exists outside of time. So God knows how to take things that occur in time for us and make them work in his system where he exists outside of time. So in our human perspective, we don't have the capacity to comprehend how it is that that God's wrath remained upon us prior to salvation, but occurred. Um, But the satisfaction of that wrath occurred at the cross. But God does because he exists outside of time and space. That's helpful for me to remember. Uh, But a believer is somebody who no longer is living under God's wrath. His wrath is no longer abiding upon them. A person who is is a follower of Christ, a person who is being regenerated, who has been regenerated, has been purchased. They've been redeemed. So redemption takes place. and to redeem is to, um, is, is to be um, purchased away from the power of another by the payment of a price. So the payment of the price was Christ's blood, his suffering at the cross, purchased away from the power of sin uh, by Christ's work. And that was done. And that was applied to a person at the day of salvation. Something else that was done in a one-time event was that person is reconciled to God. Romans 6.10 well, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life notice the past tense there having been reconciled that was something that took place in the past but it has effect it has bearing all the way into the future that is something that took place at regeneration forgiveness also takes place at regeneration Ephesians 1.7 in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespass according to the riches of his grace Um, forgiveness we know what this means it means that a debt is is removed it's permanently removed it's entirely removed it's removed on a one-time basis and it has effect into the future and all of that is through the work of christ at the cross and the last thing I want to mention as it relates to components is that, that it's really important that we understand that the old man is crucified. And when we think about the old man, we think about the man who is, is ruled by sin, where sin is his master. Sin is sitting on the throne of that man's life. At the point of re- regeneration, that old man is removed, that master is removed, and Christ is actually takes the spot of that man on that man, the throne of that man's life. Romans 6, 6 tells this. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. If you keep reading in the chapter, you understand that a person who is in Christ, who has experienced regeneration, is a slave to righteousness. They're a slave to a new master, which is Christ. So one of the things that's important that we understand when you're talking to believers here in your discussion groups and in your small group and here on Sunday morning and everywhere else that we have Body Life at this church, uh, you're talking about a person who is no longer the kind of person that they used to be. So, and, the, and the, why, the reason why that's important is when your person, your friend is telling you, yeah, you know, and they confess sin to you. Um, the best thing that you can do to that person is say, well, you need to remember that, yeah, we, we sin but we are no longer slaves to our sin. Sin is no longer master over us the way that it used to be. So you actually have the ability to walk in newness of life. So I'm going to pray for you, brother. I love you. Um, let me know how I can help you. All those things. These truths have bearing on our conversations with people. You know, It's really, really helpful when you say, how was your week? And your, your friend goes, ah, I had a rough week. You can bring this truth right into their life. And that's what body life is about here at Grace Bible Church. So those are all a list of of one-time things that took place on whatever day it was that God chose to save you and regenerate you. It's really good to understand that those things took place in the past and they have benefit into the future. And what we're going to do here is to see what those benefits really, really are. And this is some things that are really helpful too, that we understand this and that we know this. Um, Because these are things that we can forget when we fall into sin. These are things we can forget when work is hard these are things we can forget when uh, it's a challenge to, to do something we need to do within, within our household. Maybe uh, raise our children in a way that's, that's challenging or provide some parenting that's difficult for whatever reason. It's important to remember these things. That a person is loved by God. Colossians 3 is those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Paul says, those who are um, have been chosen of God are holy and beloved. God actually loves that person. He now has personal affections towards that person. He did not have affections towards them in this way prior to the regeneration event because that person was living at enmity with God and in hostility against God. So a person is actually loved by God. But that person is also indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.19 do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Paul is writing there. He's speaking directly to believers. Their body is a temple. It's a dwelling place. It's a place of residence for the Holy Spirit. That person is also indwelt by Christ. And this is something that's really helpful for believers to understand. We want to teach this at Grace Bible Church, is that the Holy Spirit resides within a believer, but Christ does as well. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So there is a very real sense in which Christ is living within the believer. We're also a member of the body of Christ. Same letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. Now you are Christ's body and you're individually members of it. So Christ is dwelling within the believer, but the believer is a member of the body of Christ. Like you become a part of this fraternity that's called the body of Christ. It's the church, the global church. But you weren't a member of it before. But the regeneration event is what brought you into that. And you have access to God. I love this chapter. Hebrews chapter 4 is great, especially when you get to the end of the verse. Paul says all these things about the challenge in a person's life. He says we must hold fast to our confession and then he says in verse 16, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hey, we're going to have times of need this week. We all are. They're going to look different for each one of us, uh, whether it's one thing or another. I know the challenges that are probably coming for me. Um, I don't. There are some others that I'm not aware of, but I know one that's probably coming this afternoon. And the great thing is that a believer has access to God. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Why? So that we might find grace to help in time of need. That help was not available to the person before regeneration, but it is now. So we can confidently come before God. We can pray with confidence. Uh, We come before God and we say, I'm coming to you because you saved me and you are at work in my life and I want to align myself with you. Would you help me see that more clearly? We're under grace. Therefore, having been justified by faith, Romans 5, verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. We're standing in grace. We're not standing responsible for our own sin anymore. We have God's unmerited favor working for us. That's something that's so important to understand, especially when we fall on our face with our sin. It's not a, it's not a free pass to sin. What it is is it the motivation to live a holy life, because God has released us from the penalty of our sin. We're also saved from God's wrath. Romans five nine says, "Having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him." All of those offenses we committed, before Christ. And all of those offenses you commit against God after Christ in my life, uh, there's a, a balance. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that the number of times I've offended God after salvation is much, much, much greater than the number of times I offended God before. But every single one of them was an offense against God, from the first one that I committed probably in 1966 to the one I committed this morning. Um, We are saved from God's wrath. Every one of those things is an offense against him and the response of a holy God is to judge that sin with wrath. And we've been spared from that. And so that's a benefit. That's important for me to remember. And I make that a part of my prayer life. Thank you, Lord, that I am spared from this. A regular part of my prayer life because it's something that I'm going to feel the benefit for into eternity. We're also free from condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. This is really helpful. Sometimes when you fall on your face with your sin, you feel like you should be condemned. But the, the good news is that Christ actually felt that wrath, and he actually took that wrath, so there's no more condemnation for us. And we can't be separated from Christ. If you read to the end of the chapter, there is nothing that can separate you from Christ Himself. I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, principalities, any other thing, height, depth, any created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So we can't be separated from Christ. We have peace with God in a way that we didn't before. With the beginning of our time together, we looked at the fact that that God was. We were at enmity with God. We're hostile towards God. After regeneration, a person has peace with God because God's wrath against that person has been satisfied by Christ at the cross. And this person who has been saved, the person who has been regenerated, they actually bear the outward evidence of having been saved. They look different. Something that's really, really encouraging to do is to look at your life this week and then look at your life the month before God saved you. And look at all of the the ways in which your life is different. And Galatians chapter 5 has a list of nine different outward evidences, nine different manifestations of the the inworking of the, the Holy Spirit in a person's life. That person has a love for God. They have a love for others because God poured his love into that person. So now they can love in a way that they didn't love before. Uh, little kids love their mom and dad. They do. But a believer has a different kind of love. It's God's love. And they have person has joy they have genuine joy and a joy that that sustains them through all the difficulties in life because they're looking to eternity they have peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and they have faithfulness a person who's truly been saved is going to be faithful to god for the rest of their life and they've been faithful to the very end with saving faith you attend a funeral service for somebody who died who's a believer and one of the things you can can declare that gives you the hope that that they have the confident understanding that they're in eternity with Christ is the fact that they were faithful to Christ up until the very end. Uh, My mom died in uh, the spring of 2019. It's been four and a half years. And uh, what gave me great joy at her funeral and speaking on her behalf was that that she was faithful to the very end. And uh, that's an attribute of a believer. That's the evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in somebody is that they are faithful to Christ until the very end. And that person has citizenship that's in heaven. They're not a citizen of this world. A person, this is really helpful for us to understand. This is what helps us endure through trials. This is what helps us to view our joys in this life rightly is the fact that our citizenship is in heaven. And we're just passing through here. God is using us as instruments for his church here. But our true identity, our true citizenship is in heaven. That's where we're going to spend the majority, the vast majority of our existence. And that's really, really helpful for the believer. So those things are true about the regenerate man. Um, Those are things that are applied to them. What I want us to do is go back to Romans 8. We're going to take a look at verses 5 through 13 again. And we're going to look at it again this time. Instead of focusing on the, the man who was not saved, the unregenerate man, we're going to focus on the regenerate man. The result of regeneration is a regenerate man. And this passage is what tells us what a regenerate man looks like. If you look at Romans 8, verse 5, towards the end of the verse, you see that those who are according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. So they no longer fill their mind with the things of the world. There is a a filling of their mind with God's truth, and they're starting to look at the world through God's perspective. Uh, Verse 6, we have the mindset of Christ, and that's a contrast to the old man. In verse 9, go down to verse 9, that person is in the spirit rather than in the flesh. Rather than the unmixed, unregenerate man being in the spirit, um, that man is is actually in the spirit. And being in the spirit means, it does not mean that you're not influenced by the flesh, but it means that you're no longer in the flesh the way that you once were. In verse 9, you also see that the spirit of God is dwelling in a person, And there's a conflict between that person and the sin that's within them. There's now a tension. There's a conflict that was never there uh, prior to regeneration. A person might have known that something was wrong. Their conscience might have been convicting them, but there was no fight against it. Now there's a tension. In verse 10, you read that if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. This is about the most clear picture that you can find in scripture of the mixed condition. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. So we still have the same body we were born with, but now we have God's Holy Spirit within us. In verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit which dwells in you. So the father chooses to impart spiritual life to the regenerate man through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. That wasn't there prior to regeneration. And you look at verses 12 and 13. we will go back and read those. This is really helpful. Um, So then brothers, we are brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. And uh, the believer is about the process of putting to death the deeds of the flesh. That's what it means to live for Christ today. That's the foundation that supports you in your fight against sin. Is um, It's in Christ. It's being in Christ and having the Spirit of God within you so that you actually can put sin to death. That's the only way that you can put sin to death is, is by the Spirit, by keeping in step with the Spirit, not by gritting your teeth and trying really hard. Although we must do things that, that remove ourselves from proximity of sin and everything else. The way a person actually defeats sin and puts sin away from their life is by abiding with Christ, by keeping in step with the Spirit. So this is really, really important for us. And these are the key descriptions of the believer's life. So it's it's really important to see what characterizes the believer. And it's important for us to think about these things because these are things that spur us on to holiness of life. That we have new identity with Christ. Um, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 says, By his doing you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God. We also have the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We have good works that we do. Uh, God didn't save us to just leave us the way we used to be. He saved us because he wants to use us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. God has plans to use each one of us, and he put those plans in motion the day he saved us, and those plans will be over the day we we breathe our last. We now have the ability to obey God in a way that we couldn't. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and work according to his good pleasure. Uh, The verse before that says, Um, we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But the reason why we work out our salvation with fear and trembling is because God is inside of us working according to his good pleasure, which is holiness of life. So we actually have the ability and it's it's an ability that, that is rested in God's presence within us, God's work within us. So that's really, really helpful for us to understand. But it's also important for us to understand that on that hand, on the one hand, we've got God working for us. We have the ability to obey him. But at the same time, we have a proneness towards sin. Galatians 5.17 tells us, the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another. This is one of the most important things we can understand about the mixed condition that a believer is in. Every single believer is in this condition where the flesh sets itself against the spirit. And the spirit sets itself against the flesh. If you look to the right of your your pamphlet here, the place where that is not the case is the heavenly man over on the right. But the regenerate man in the middle, there is a tension between sin and his life. There was no tension with sin prior to regeneration. But after regeneration, there is no attention. tension. And the way that you know that Paul is writing to believers here is he says, the spirit is against the flesh, the flesh is against the spirit. These are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. What Paul is saying there is that sin is deceitful, the heart is deceitful, and it will lead us to do things that as believers we don't want to do. But there's ongoing repentance in a believer's life. Um, There's a need for ongoing repentance. Whenever you you get together with your brother in Christ and how are you doing? And you you describe some pattern of sin that's in your life. Hopefully he says to you something like, so what does repentance look like from that pattern of sin? Because the reason why he asked that is we have the ability to actually walk in newness of life. Uh, First John 1, 8 and 9 says, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. So John is establishing the fact that there is ongoing sin in the life of a believer. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. Uh, The process of confessing your sin to the Lord and agreeing with God about your sin that what you did was offensive to him is where the the repentance process begins, agreeing with God about your sin. But a person not only receives faith upon salvation, but they have an ongoing faith. It's a faith that continues. We we read Galatians 2.20 earlier where Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. I don't live, but Christ lives within me. But he says, The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's a present day ongoing reality that a person lives by faith. It's an ongoing faith that they carry with them. It's not just a faith that God gave that person to save them, it's a faith that God gave them to, to navigate every aspect of life that he has for us here. And there's actually a progress in Christ likeness in a person's life, and you can see that in. In 2 Corinthians 3, um, we are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. The believer actually as a person who is becoming more and more sanctified. And if you feel like you need encouragement, it's really helpful to take a look at your life some number of years ago when you were earlier in your walk with Christ and look at what God has done in you. Look at how he's used challenging situations at work, challenging situations In your family or with health or finances or something else he's used those to sanctify you and you can look and you can notice tangible ways in your life that god has placed you in a place that is more sanctified that is farther along in the sanctification curve than where you were some number of years ago it's really really encouraging to do that because the enemy wants to lie to you and say oh you're the same sinner you always were well the truth is that you do sin but the truth is that you're much more sanctified than you used to be and so it's really, really helpful to do that every now and then. Put that on your calendar and just evaluate for a few minutes the kind of person you were in 2014 or 2017 and see the way God has grown you and your hunger for the word, your ability to, to explain your testimony to somebody else, your ability to, to instruct your kids, your ability to encourage a brother. Uh, look at all the different ways in which God is growing you and be encouraged. That, that, that really is evidence of God's work in your life, that he is not done with you. And he will complete, and he is completing the work that he began in you. And one thing that's really important for a believer to remember is that they're at, they're free from the slavery to sin. And this is so important. This is really important for believers to understand. And this is one of my, my favorite verses, uh, is in Romans six, verses six and seven, uh, that the person is actually their their sin is crucified as their master, and they no longer have sin as the master, but that they are actually the master over sin. And the, the way that that's important to us, and the reason why that's important today, is because the person can, when they're faced with the opportunity to sin, a believer, someone who's been regenerated, can say, sin is no longer my master. I no longer have to obey that the way that I used to. And so I don't have to do this. Uh, if you're, you're tempted to fall into some kind of heated conversation with your wife, you can look her in the eye and you can say, We don't have to do this. Uh, Prior to salvation, we had to do this because we were slaves to our sin. But we don't have to do this today. You can say that same thing to your friend. You can say that to a family member. You can say that to anybody else who's a believer in Christ, uh, that that we are not slaves to sin. So we don't actually have to behave as if we were. So that's really helpful. So it's good for us to remember that those things are true about us. And these things that are really, really good for us to understand but we need to understand how God is at work here. That, that this isn't just that God saves a person and leaves the person to work things out in, that, in their life. God is actually at work in a person's life. And we can see that in Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. This is a, something that helps us understand God's relentless transformation of the unbeliever. We do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. This is something that's really important for us to understand. We're being renewed day by day. And what that is, is God transforming us day by day, not changing our nature anymore because our nature was changed at the point of salvation. But God is renewing us. He's giving us a greater and greater comprehension of him. He is growing us in our perseverance and our endurance, our ability to persevere through challenges Day by day, he's doing that. So we can look at our life a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, and we can see that God has been at work and he will continue to be at work. And so the mixed condition requires that God do that because sin that's in us and the sin that's present in us and our our nature is, is to run after sin. But when God is renewing us and God is at work within us because of his Holy Spirit... We actually have the ability to to grow. And that's what we want to understand. So we have God's work within us, but we also have our own pursuit of holiness. I really like this. Um, Second Peter chapter one. My notes here say 1 Peter, but it's 2 Peter chapter 1. Verses 3 through 8 describe what a believer, uh, their life in Christ looks like. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn there? 2 Peter 1, we're going to look at verses 3 through 8. And we're going to see how a person is responsible for their own growth in their life. There are many things that a person must do and they must pursue. So what Peter writes here is he talks about what God does in the first few verses. And then he talks about the believer's responsibility after that. He says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead. So there's God's work in us. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Why? To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. That's reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So that's God's work. And that's pretty impressive. Those are some verses that are really good to memorize. If you want to remember what it is that God did, he is the one who caused you to be born again to a living hope. He is the one who has given you an inheritance which is imperishable and will not fade away. It means it's going to last. The inheritance that you have today is a permanent inheritance. But when you get to verse 6, you you see the things that the believer is responsible for doing. Uh, He says... In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Through, and though you have not seen him, you love him, and you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice, with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Did I say Second Peter? You did. I did. First Peter. My notes were backwards on that. I'm sorry about that. This is all First Peter chapter 1. So if you're listening to this on the recording, First Peter chapter 1. If you look at Jeremiah chapter 17, the reason why we, we need to go there and remember this is we need to be wary of our own heart because of our own heart condition. Um, we have indwelling sin and we need to be very wary and very aware of indwelling sin. And the reason why is because the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is more deceitful than all else. And it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Sin is insane. Bobby Casillas mentioned this when he taught us through Jeremiah several weeks back. Sin can lead a man to think insanely about sin. And so we need to be aware of the opportunities for sin and the way that it will deceive us. But this also requires that the believer persevere. And this is really helpful for us. Uh, The author of Hebrews writes in chapter three, take care, brethren. So be at work, brethren, focus your attention, focus your thoughts that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. The way that you know a person is a believer is that they hold fast their assurance of their faith firm until the end. And so there's an activity that's involved in this, but believers do this. God gives the believer the ability to do this. The unbeliever doesn't have that ability. So the believer must hold fast and persevere, hold fast to what they believe and persevere through whatever season of life God brings to you. So we want to understand here that there are some key descriptions. There's a mixed condition that the person is in. They are now able to not sin. And they are now able to please God, whereas prior, those things were not true. And now there's a fight against sin. It's a fight against sin and a fight for Christ, to honor Christ as the Lord of your life. You're no longer enslaved to sin, but you're enslaved to God and righteousness and obedience. But there is residual sin in your life. And residual sin is evident in your life, and it's evident together with regeneration but a person is able to shepherd themselves and counsel themselves away from sin and to holiness of life. And that person is not under wrath or judgment. And those things are good news. So the mixed condition of the a, a believer is, is very important for us to understand. That just helps us be gracious towards one another because we're going to sin against one another. Uh, and all the times we rub up against one another, we greet one another, we love one another, um, We're going to be rude to one another. We're going to choose our words poorly. We're going to do lots of things that are going to lay up offenses against one another. And it's just helpful for us to remember when we're dealing with a brother, that our brother is in a mixed condition. Or when we're dealing with uh, a believing child or a believing spouse, that person's in a mixed condition. God is finishing the work that he began. Um, But we don't expect that a person sins, but we, we know that it will be there. And we need to be gracious when another one sins against us. And we need to be receptive when someone comes to us with our own sin. Um, That person is coming to us for our good. They might do it, not do it very well. They might not do it biblically. But nonetheless, they're coming to us because at some level they love us. They love the body of Christ. They love the strengthening of the body of Christ. So it's very, very helpful in in all aspects of Christian body interaction. Just to remember that, that along with myself, my brother over here, my sister over there, uh, they're in a mixed condition. And that will, will affect the way that they write their emails. It will affect the way they, they type the letters on their text. It will affect all of those things. And we are to have um, compassion and kindness and grace towards one another and all those things. So that's the, uh, the unregenerate man and the regenerate man. And next time we're going to take a look at the, the heavenly man. So we'll take a look at that next time. That is all good news. And so I'm pretty excited about talking about that because that talks about where it is that we're going uh, when we will not be be beset by all of our sin.